clear the airways. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Captain Jeff. Thanks for tuning in to the uh, Real Guy Podcast. Um, very special guest today, Jamie Huff from Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, it was great to have him on the show today, and um, I hope you guys enjoy the episode as much as I did. We're doing this via Skype, so it doesn't sound the best, so bear with us, and excuse the editing, and run that dog. Enjoy the episode. Hey, thanks for being on the Longer Dog Podcast. Oh, Jeff, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, we've been trying to do this for, what, about six months now? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I've been, you know, I, I just kept thinking that sooner or later, um, we would be able to do it face-to-face live in the Munker Dog Studios and get some pictures and videos and all that kind of stuff. So I kept pushing it off, kept pushing it off. And then um, now with this, you know, coronavirus and being on lockdown, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to wait another six months to get it done. I know, man. I, I wish we could do it face-to-face because that would be a good time. It's just uh, – I mean, you know, hell, I, I want to say 2020, but 2019 was a, a crazy year for me too. I know it was for you. Uh, and now 2020 is shaping up to be a crazy year. Also, I just saw a report today that hurricane season is going to be uh, off the charts again. But I think they start out, you know, every April or May they say that. So I don't, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, who thought this, you know, who knew this kind of stuff was coming? Uh, you know what I mean? I was, yeah. I, was, I was fighting some other issues with sewage and infrastructure problems and them poisoning the goddamn fish and everything. I didn't see this coming. No, and I appreciate you taking a stance on that too. You know, it's uh, I, I didn't get to see it firsthand, obviously because I'm up here in South Carolina. But the, the really the only negative stuff that I was able to see, like the truth of the matter, was by looking at, at your stuff on social media. So thanks for championing that cause and uh, and taking a stance. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, like you know, if you're unfortunately here in Fort Lauderdale, there's not that many you know, what I call real guys left. <laughs> There's freaking a million people here. And right. There's three dudes fish uh, in the intercoastal every day. <laughs> That's but, crazy. Uh, but I, I don't want to talk about the infrastructure. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the freaking crazy situation we're in with the infrastructure, I mean, with the uh, coronavirus a little bit. But really, I want my audience to hear about Jamie Hoff. Um <laughs> I mean, I met I met you personally at LunkerCon over in Tampa. Um, immediately, you know, after shaking your hand and speaking with you just a minute or two, I'm like, God, oh, I get he's, he's a real guy. And then um, I started paying, you know, a lot more attention to uh, your social media stuff. And if I wanted something, if I wanted something to be entertained about or or something to look at, something interesting. Um, there was a constant feed coming from. Gotcha. But, um, <laughs> well, talk, talk about your guide business a little bit because um, this just kind of educate my audience on um, on uh, exactly what you do right now. Yeah. So um, basically, the 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 short uh, short story long is, and excuse me if I got a little bit of a lisp. I just had a. a lunker of a tooth taken out on my left side and uh, i got like 22 stitches in it right now so um <clears throat> yeah every now and then i feel like a dead deer you know my tongue just kind of flops out the side but uh i started guiding <clears throat> right after i started college here in charleston uh i didn't want to wait tables and um uh, this lady in uh 
in Polly's Island had a second home there, and she used to let me let me cut her grass in exchange for uh, let me borrow her John boat. And so I, you know, growing up in Polly's, there's not really any red fishing or trout fishing. There might be now. I don't want anybody to get upset, but back then, but prior to 1995, the only thing you fished for was flounder. Which don't get me wrong, I love me a, a, a big flounder, but. Um, so when I came to Charleston, really the only kind of fishing I knew how to do was either, uh, using a, you know, a bamboo or hickory handle rod, uh, with a pin Senator and catching spots off the pier or, uh, or going trolling for flounder. So I started taking, you know, friends of mine's parents when they'd come in town for family weekend or whatever, or parents weekend, I'd take them flounder fishing and stuff. And it just kind of evolved into, uh, into a little bit more than that. I actually moved to Florida, uh, the summer after my first year in school, and uh, I started working at Bud Mary's and kind of cut my teeth down there, tarpon fishing in the, in the afternoons. And um, at night, I would work on the head boat. And then uh, in the daytime, I'd second mate on a on a big boat. The first uh, first big boat I ever worked on down there was the Kalex with Alex Adler. Um, and I did that on and off for nine years. And in the meantime, whenever I was home for school, back then I was going to school once one semester a year. And um, I would basically just uh, just guide when I was home and <clears throat> started that charter business from nothing and. Uh, here we are um, about to embark on the 25th year for uh, what used to be called flat spot charters. And um, in 2009, I started an apparel company out of my house called Redfish Mafia. Uh-huh. And kind of kind of the same thing you and I were talking about earlier. Um, basically, people were, you know, on, on Facebook just killing me because they thought that every fish we held up for a picture, uh, they thought that, you know, we, we were killing all these fish. And I was like, you know, we need to you need to create a page where people know what they're getting into when they go to that page. So we pretty much called it like, this is before anybody started using the AF or anything like that, or ZFG. Uh, It was basically a page, you know, you you knew that you were getting into something that had to do with Redfish if you went to the Redfish Mafia page. And and that that turned into some shirts and hats and stickers. And, you know, now we're doing, you know, uh, between 1,000 and 1,500 shirts and hats out of the house on stamps.com. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm right on the verge of having to branch that out into something else and, and, uh, take on a partner or, or you know, get, get a, an actual retail space or something. I don't even know what, what I'm going to do with it, but it's getting to be too much out of the house. I can tell you that, but, um, but no, we, we redfish up here. We trout fish. We, uh, we do get some tarpon in the summertime, but after living in Florida and chasing them in the keys, uh, for so long, it, it, it you're hard pressed to get me to go tarpon fishing up here, man. I just, I can't. There's guys that'll fish for 60 days for them and catch 15, and I just can't do that. Right. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough thing to ask your clients to do. Um, you know, that's that's hardcore stuff. I know a couple of dudes up there in Charleston area that have been able to figure out the tarpon a little bit. But, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's not a natural place to catch them. So I think that the, uh, like, one of the things, with, you know, fishing for tarpon all the time here is, um Sometimes I'm a little envious of the redfish guys. Right. Because, you know, there's so many more places you can fish for them. Yeah. There's so many more. Well, the market's just a lot bigger. You know, it's not as niche. And um, then there's organizations, you know, that are into redfish. You know, like like one of the things that I, I, I know that um, in your past is, you know, you were competing in redfish tournaments. Yes. Well, competing in carpet tournaments. You know, you're hanging out with a bunch of millionaires down there. He's yeah. able to pay the best guy to take you out there. You're dead in the water. Exactly. It's like if you didn't book it the previous year, uh, you're in trouble. You can't just decide two weeks beforehand unless there's like, 
you know, like if Clyde Upchurch calls you and Sarah Skippy Nielsen and says, you know what, I just decided to guide in the in the poor boys this year. Do you want to come be my client? That's a different ball game, you know. And yeah. I, I would get on the boat with those guys and put my money on them any day of the week. But it, you know, you don't just like two weeks before the tarpon tournament decide that oh, you know what, I think I'll fish the tarpon tournament and then wind up with a fighting chance. Now, granted, a lot of like here, you can line fifteen or twenty boats up in the same area, and anybody's got a shot. As long as your terminal tackle, terminal tackle uh, education is where it needs to be and you got the right bait. But you and I both know uh, not everybody can go get a dozen right off the bat, you know? <laughs> oh, dude. Not only do we know, I take major pride in putting the word on that. Exactly. I'm getting a dozen, you know, kind of like in George God's, God's show, um, people don't understand the significance or the relevance of being able to get a dozen. So, no. I'm glad you spread the word. I learned that a long time ago, man. When I was when I was doing some tarpon trips out of Blood Marys in the afternoons uh, on the nights that I wasn't booked on the headboat uh, for twenty dollars on the Gulf Lady. Um, basically, if you know that first month or two that I was there, the mullet lady wouldn't even sell me mullet, much less did I know where to go throw a fourteen foot cast net and catch them. Uh, but she, she was like, no, 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 you you got to get on the waiting list, brother. We we go catch enough for the guys that we have on this list. And that's it. And I'm like, well, what, what am I supposed to do? So I was taking people tarpon fishing with pin fish and crabs. Right. <laughs> but that was also before people started chunking mullet and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's changed a lot since I lived down there. But it's definitely a, a harder fishery now. It's just like our redfish here. It's a much harder fishery now than it was when I first started. Um, yeah. It's actually, actually, when I first started, it was pretty bad. And then about 10 years ago, it got really really good i mean schools of three and four and five hundred i mean you know a 50 50 fish four hour trip was nothing 10 years ago now you're hard pressed to catch 50 fish in two days worth of fishing um but it's just you know there's so many more people and it's all cyclical it'll come back around like this believe it or not one of the tiny little slivers of a silver lining with this coronavirus deal is that uh there's not that many people on the water right now and so there's not a lot of pressure on the fish. And I'm finding these schools of fish are a lot easier to get to eat now than they were two months ago. Huh. It's funny you say that. Because, um, you know, all of a sudden I've got a ton of time. And what I'm doing on my free time is I'm trying to get, lose a little bit of weight, trying to get out of <laughs> you know, walk and everything. So I walk from my house and I go down to the river over here, where Tarpon Bend is, which is mm-hmm. the place called Tarpon Bend. So historically, it's always been close to tarpon one of the so In the last five or six years, you know, the boat traffic has gotten so consistent and so um, relentless that the tarpon want to be in there, but they just can't hang out in there anymore, right? Right. So at the end of my walk, I sit there on the friggin' seawall for a minute or two, I'll do a few different exercises, and I stare out at the tarpon vent. And in the last 10 days or so, there hasn't been any boats going by. And the tarpon are happy again. In like three years, I've consecutively seen schools of tarpon hanging out in Tarpon Bend. That's awesome. Well, it just goes to show you that we are having a real impact on what the fish do. Oh, it's huge. Whether we're chasing them, trying to catch them with a rod and reel, anglers, yep. or hanging over them with tugboats and 100, 100 foot yachts like we do here in Fort Lauderdale. Right. Um, and, you know, you can go down the list, but, man, it's just so apparent now that there's nobody on the water. Yeah, it's uh, it's changing a lot. And it's funny how, you know, it's only what it's 
really it's only been about a month that people's habits have changed. Um, and it's already, it's already making an impact, yeah. you know, uh, this, we're in some strange times right now. I mean, you know, growing up, you know, I always heard my mom say stuff like, I remember when the challenger exploded and she was like, Oh, this is going to be like, like watching JFK get shot on TV. This is the challenger exploding on TVs. That's going to be the same thing to you. That's one of the things you're going to remember your whole life. And she's right. I'll never forget that. But there's a lot of kids that are, you know, what, what, uh, 15 16 17 years old right now this this is like the first major event that they're ever going to remember in their lives yeah and we haven't had one of these since like 1918 <laughs> yeah it's yeah. crazy and then and you know with the advancements you can go get two hips changed in an hour in an hour and walk the next day to the grocery store well now we can't even go to the grocery store because it's daggum coronavirus yeah. you know it's the advancements in medicine are uh, are just ridiculous these days. I can't imagine this would be like the Black Plague if we didn't have the the advancements in medicine that we have right now. If this was 50 years ago, there'd be a million people dying because of this thing. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Well, you know, I just it's just like absolutely wonderful to watch, to sit back and have to watch what's going on right now. My skateboard always was to go to work. So mm -hmm. work. I could go fishing for the day. I went fishing for the day. No matter what was happening in the world, everything shut off. And I could freaking focus on fishing. And then I could turn everything back on when I came home. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, and you were working. So it's not like you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing or doing something that's not productive. I mean, one of my, one of my sayings is nobody can ever get mad at you for working too hard. You know, so that's always been my escape as well as uh, let's go to work. And my wife will tell you, I'm always happier when I'm fishing every single day. I'd rather do 100 days in a row than to have a day off, because if I have a day off, somebody else doesn't have the day off and they're out there hammering my fish. So I feel like that, like in the back of my mind, I just feel like, man, they're catching all the fish that I should be catching today. And they're making a thousand bucks today. And I should be out there making that money, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard when you, you don't have that escape. And I mean, it, having, using work as your escape is actually, I think that's a pretty healthy thing to do. Uh, that means you like your job, first of all, uh, right. but it also means that you're good at it. And I think those two things go hand in hand. You can't, you can't like it uh, as much as you should if you're not good at it. And you can't be as good as you should be at it if you don't like it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's, you know, that's the best way to look at it. it makes, and it makes sense. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Not too much. Not too much. <laughs> it's a, a nonsensical day and time, that's for sure. Well, I got to tell you, um, when, um, like I'm into the redfish thing. I'm into the fishing charter. I'm into the lifestyle. I'm into the real guy thing. But I got to tell you, um, the story um, of the fishing guy um, is almost the same. You know, it's hard to be a good fishing guide without putting in the time and energy. And like you explained to the audience, 25 years, doing whatever you got to do from head to starving fish to dead fishing to, you know, and it just never is an easy process. And I think no. that these outdoor podcasts and listen to all the guides, understand that and know that. But you have another passion that I really wanted to talk about, and that's cooking. Yeah, I love to cook, man. I like to eat, bottom line. Uh, <laughs> you know, and especially right now, we can't go to all these restaurants and stuff. And 
it's super expensive if you do take out every single night from a restaurant. So, I mean, what better skill set to have in times like these than being able to cook, you know? Um, yeah. And my dad, my dad was a, uh, a chef when I was younger for a short while, and then he ran some restaurants and ran some bars and owned a couple of restaurants and bars. And so I've always been around it. You know, my grandmother and grandfather, they were farmers, grew, right. uh, grew everything. They didn't buy anything at the store unless it was like dairy or meat or eggs. Uh, right. They grew all their own vegetables in a one acre lot next to their house. And then they grew 20,000 acres of tobacco. Um, and so, and that's where my work ethic comes from. We used to my parents used to send me up there for summers and spring spring breaks to crop tobacco, which let me tell you how much fun that is. <laughs> oh my God, <clears throat> I'd I'd rather pull my fingernails out. It's like it's yeah. the worst job I've ever had in my life. But it makes me realize that the harder you work, the less likely you are to have to be the guy out there cropping the tobacco. Instead, you can be the guy just driving them up there in a the truck. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> at any rate, that's uh, I got the cooking bug from from my parents and from my grandma and. I really am big on like I love traditions, right. uh, and I feel like at this day and age, there's um, a lot of like jarring and preserving is going by the wayside, which frustrates me. Uh, you know, my grandmother and grandfather used to have two big uh, stand-up freezers in the mudroom, laundry room, and they were just jam-packed with all the vegetables. You know, they didn't let anything go to waste. Um, and you know jars of tomato sauce jars of uh fig preserves i was like what what is a fig i didn't even know till i was like when it was raw i was like this clearly doesn't have enough uh because it doesn't have any sugar in it whatsoever and i didn't you know i didn't even know what a fig was basically until i don't know 14 15 years old but we had fig preserves all over the house all the time had no idea that the tree in the yard was a fig tree Right. You know, just little things like that, like making your own preserves and stuff. So I've been intrigued by that part of the cooking uh, for a long time. Like we, I'm standing in my back door right now looking at my garden. We got field peas back here, tomatoes, squash, you know, all kinds of herbs. I love growing hot peppers, mainly because they don't require a lot of talent to grow and they <laughs> last for a long time. <laughs> like this year, we didn't really have a cold winter, so my peppers made it all the way through the winter, uh, which was pretty cool. So, um, but yeah, I love the cooking. Um, master chef was a really cool experience. Um, we, we, we're pretty social people. My wife and I, we don't have any kids. So, uh, for about the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years, we have a dinner party at the house about once a week and, um, people around town, uh, know about it. And so we were out at a bar one night and, uh, got introduced to somebody and, um, the person introduced us said this, you know, this is Jamie. He likes to cook a lot. And instantly this girl pulls out her phone forwards me an email and it was an application for MasterChef. Really? Um, yeah. And so, you know, I'd had a couple libations, a couple cocktails, <laughs> came home at 1 a.m. and filled out this little application online with 20,000 other people right. and um, completely forgot that I did it, man. I, I started getting phone calls from California. And I mean, you know how the charter business is. You know where 90 percent of your customers call from. Right. I don't get calls from California unless it's Google trying to sell me AdWords. Of course, nowadays, it's like this chick named Ann trying to tell me that my uh, school loans can be um, transferred and stuff. I mean, those are the only calls I get from California, so I just didn't answer them. Finally, one day, I answered it, and it was this dude named JC, and he's like, "Uh, we need you to come downtown tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. and cook a dish for your your master chef audition i was like what wait what are you talking about i was like oh shit i completely forgot that i filled that thing out 
<laughs> I was like, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was like, dude, I gotta, I gotta fish tomorrow morning. I can't come down there at 10 a.m. I can be there at like two. And uh, and he was like, all right, I guess. I mean, I don't think they really had anybody. Uh, you know, most people are like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you. They didn't have anybody that was just like, dude, I, I can't be there for that. I can, I can afford. I got to fish tomorrow. <laughs> Probably the right. first time he'd ever heard that in his life. Um, and so. I got off the boat and put the Traeger in the back of the truck and I went and made shrimp and grits on a, on the smoker in the back of my truck in the middle of the street, downtown Charleston. And then, uh, like, I don't know, a month later, um, you know, they started doing Skype interviews similar to this. And they asked me about my whole rescue and relief nonprofit and all that kind of stuff. And they really liked the story. And, uh, February of last year, they flew me to LA and the rest is, I guess, history, you know? Wow. How did you, I mean, how did you like that whole experience with the production work? And then you the cooking part of it. Yeah, I mean, I liked all of it. Uh, the hardest part for me was, uh, you know, you get off the plane in the airport, they take away your phone, your computer, your iPad, any anything that you have to communicate with the outside world is gone. Right. So that was the hardest part for me. It's like, how am I going to run this charter business? You know, January, February, March, I should be booking up trips for the summer. And then all of a sudden, two weeks into it, I was like, you know what? I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to soak all this in and just learn from this experience. Excuse me. And they had, uh, you know, we did cooking classes like two days a week with Gordon Ramsay's crew. Right. So I learned a lot, you know, doing that. Um, and I learned a lot about myself, you know, being cooped up in a hotel for six weeks and two days with a, a really eclectic group of people from all over the country. Right. I'm talking about, you know, people from every background you can think of. Um, and so that was that was a neat experience. But, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I would never I'd never do that. again. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, would you? Then, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Through the process, because that's a hell of a process, like going through like a football camp or something. Oh, yeah. Did you walk away with any good relationships or friends? Actually, I did. Um, <clears throat> like uh, Dorian, that won the show, is a great friend of mine now. Okay. Um Noah and I became really good friends, which is weird because Noah's he's a big guy. He's like, uh, I think he's 6'9", you know, 300 pounds, and 320, something like that. He's a big old boy, a big goofy dude from Georgia. Um, and, and in nature, had he and I crossed paths, probably never would have been friends because we just have personalities that kind of clash, you know. Right. Um, and I'm 20 years older than he is. That makes a big difference. Um, so, but because of the show – and we're, we're forced to be around each other. He's a, he's a pretty funny guy. He's well-educated. Uh, I think, my, I think I'm kind of a funny guy. I don't know. Shit. I laugh at the things I say. So I say them. And when I left the show that one of the producers, like, so we're, we're, each person is assigned a producer and some producers have like three and four people that they have to do all the interviews with. So we would do like, we would film for a couple hours a day and then we'd have like six or seven hours worth of interviews. And that's where they get all the sound bites and they, you know, all the things that go with the different scenarios, whatever. And, um, but the whole day you're mic'd up. And so when you're in the holding room while other people are being interviewed, because there's only two or three rooms to interview people in. So when there's 20 people there in the beginning, you know, 17 of us are in this holding room for like five or six hours. Really? And they're mic you're mic'd up the whole time. And they have this audio floor of nothing but people doing audio. It's like 20 or 30 people up there. I don't know that we've never been in there, but I can only assume how many people are in there. Um, they pulled me aside after when I was leaving, like the day before I flew out. And they were like, let me tell you, in 10 years of filming the show, we have never laughed as hard as we've laughed at you and Noah 
giving people and each other a hard time in that holding room. They said it was the funniest shit they ever heard in their lives. <laughs> oh, and I bet you they were amped to have it. Yeah. I was like, well, I, they, they probably can't use any of it, you know, because, you know, you're, you're, you're just being yourself. You're in there cussing and cutting up or whatever. You're not really thinking about whether or not it's good for TV. Right. <laughs> no, I'm just but, saying the atmosphere, you know, when they're filming and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it made it better for them. But, you know, they get to pick who they have on the show, obviously. And I mean, you'd be the best cook in the world. But if you're not uh, a good interviewer and if you're not a good speaker and unless you have like a stick like you know some sometimes people are on these shows and you can just tell they're on it because they're idiots um but in our in our season there wasn't anybody like that everybody uh was a good interviewer and good and good for tv and so um you know like i say you could be the best cook in the world but if you're not good for tv uh or, or a good person to speak with then you're not gonna be on the show yeah, so yeah. yeah exactly you know if, if you don't if you just don't like to talk i mean you could be james beard himself but if you don't like to talk they're not gonna have you on the show I think, um, you know, I think it's kind of <clears throat> kind of neat because I, I was going to go on to the so far, cooking and fishing um, are somewhat um, very similar. Yes. Traditions that you pass on, you know, both in fishing and in cooking. They are, and they've, they've got a self-sufficient aspect to them, too. You know, being self-sufficient, I kind of pride myself on that. I, I tell people a lot of times that I'm, I'm probably one of the most prepared guys you'll ever meet, like with regard to what's in my truck bed and what's in my deck system. And, you know, there's just things I, oh, you need that? I probably have it in my truck right now. I mean, it's almost like I'm a hoarder, but you just can't see all the stuff, right. uh, you know. So, but cooking and fishing, uh, both of those things combined, uh, you can pr you can pretty much just, you know, live off the land your whole life if you can do those two things. Sure. Um but the, uh, there's one huge difference, and uh, I just filmed for four days with the people from Penn. They're going to release this really awesome video about it, and uh, I just got to see it last night. It gave me goosebumps. But one of the things that we talked about was they, they asked me, what, you know, what do I like about cooking uh, as opposed to fishing? And I, the thing that I like about cooking is that I can control 100% of the things involved. Yeah. Whereas with fishing, the things that piss me off with fishing are things that I cannot control. Yeah. You know, I can control whether or not we're going to get broken off. I can control whether or not we're going to pull a hook to a certain extent. I cannot control the weather, the wind, the watercolor, whether or not these fish are in a good mood. You know, I say all the time, Mother Na Nature is the ficklest of women. Uh, you just, you, there's just so much uncontrollable stuff. All you can do is put yourself in the best possible position with the best possible equipment and the most possible knowledge that you can have. That's all you can do with fishing. Yeah. Uh, but with cooking, you get to choose everything, you get to pick everything, and you get to control everything. So, you know, being most guys like me and you are type A guys, captains in general like to be control freaks because that's really all we do is control things. Right. Uh, you know, you're driving or, or whatever the case may be. Um, in some instances, casting for people. <laughs> um, so, you know, having control in the kitchen is one of the things I love about cooking for sure. And you get to eat it when you're done. Right. That's a bonus. Right, right. And a little more social. The um, the things that uh, the things that uh, I'm not a huge chef or anything, but you know, I got I got one side of my family that is 
plumbers in South Georgia remind me of some of the things that you told me about mm-hmm. in your experience. And then I had the other side of the family who were a bunch of Italians that came over on a boat from Sicily. And my mother and my father, although they came from two different parts of the world, with two different cultures, two different ways of looking at pretty much everything. Right. But the cooking. It's um, common, common ground. Right. And it's like that um, in one form, fashion, or the other um, all over the world, which, which, which I guess would, uh, would go into the fact that uh, you were able to do a cooking show and however many millions of people watch that probably dwarfed the amount of people that ever watched fishing shows combined all together. Oh, it's the numbers are staggering. It's uh, I think I think Major League Fishing, which obviously is bass fishing. I, I mean, I would lo- yeah, I'd love to be on that show. And I like the show, but uh, you know, it's just a show that I would never find myself on because I'm not a bass fisherman. But I think they get the most views of any fishing show on television, and it's like a million views, right? Right. I'm pretty sure uh, all 40 countries for MasterChef each episode is like 120 million. Yeah. So, and and the bottom line is, everybody on the planet eats. You yeah. know, I th- I think seventeen percent of the people on the planet fish. Right. If right. my numbers are correct, but it, it, even if they're not correct, it's not far off from that. Um, the numbers I find on the internet are just, those are the ones I'm going to go with because I don't want to waste any time looking on the internet for stuff. So <laughs> that could be the Wikipedia percentage. I don't know. But it's, it's just, you know, 100% of people eat. And that's why, like, uh, you know, my YouTube channel that we started, The Chef Redneck, we got one episode on there. It's half fishing, half cooking. And I was just like, you know, we're, we're just not getting – I know that you have to have a lot of – I mean, you, you as, as much as anybody knows that you got to have a lot of content for your YouTube to gain any ground at all. Sure. Um, and it's hard to cook and film just like it's hard to fish and film by yourself. It's yeah. really super. I mean, you could do it, but you're just going to get shitty footage. And yeah. then once you do get the footage, then you got to spend 10 times the amount of time sitting down to edit something. So I was just like, you know, I think we want to switch gears and just go, go to the cooking because then we can say, all right, we're going to do it at four o'clock on this day in a kitchen where it's not raining. It's not windy. You know, it, it doesn't matter if the fish are biting or not. We've already been to the store. It just makes everything so much easier because it's controllable. Right. So, you know, that's that's the avenue we're kind of we're trying to go right now. We just filmed a pilot for a show a couple weeks ago and it's in the editing uh, stages right now. We're going to pitch it to some to some um, stations in L.A. and see where that goes. But it's a pretty cool premise that I've never seen before. So, you know, and it's all about the cooking. We probably talk about the fishing and stuff because it's it's a part of my life that I'll never get away from. I'll never stray from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've tried to, I've tried other professions and I always go back to the fishing. I just, I can never stop the fishing. It's like somebody who's a bartender. They'll tell you that they can't stop making cash every night. The yeah. money, the money part of fishing. Yeah. I, I can't, I like being able to go do a charter. I know I'm going to get X amount of money when I'm done. It's instant gratification at its finest, but not, not going fishing on a daily basis drives me absolutely crazy. And it, I mean, not, not, not because of the money. But just because it's just it's so ingrained in me now, that's all I want to do. Yeah. You yeah, know, at this point, and um, you know, once it in, once it gets in there, um, it don't lose. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think yeah, I think that is expensive to time and the energy 
in the sacrifice more than anything. Mm-hmm. You've given so much. Um, you're attached. And yeah. There's no living without it. Yeah. No. Yeah. And not, I mean, not to sound like I don't want to sound like I know. I don't want to sound like I'm saying I'm I'm the best at it, or whatever, because I'm I'm not by far. But you also feel like you you've got this talent, and you're really good at this talent. And the last thing you want to do is not use this talent. And it's not a talent that you you can be born with it. It's not like you know, oh my God, he's three years old and he just had a perfect golf swing. It's not like that. Everybody who's good at fishing has paid their dues. I mean, yes, yeah, some people it clicks a little quicker, but it's a it's in your mind. It has nothing to do with your physical abilities. Right. You know, it's just one day you wake up and you realize that it, it clicks today. I don't I don't have to think about where I'm going and what I'm going to do the night before. I don't I, you know, it just it clicks. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but I'm sure you can recall a point in your life where all of a sudden it all just lined up and made sense. And from then on out, it's been a, not easy, but a lot easier than it was. Well, it's nice to know. It's nice to know you know, the process of it. And it's nice to know what you're, what you actually have, what you're into. Because I think, I think for the longest time, especially when you start professional fishing careers, you have no clue. No. You for 10 years, you've got time to clue. And at 20 years, you feel like you've got a master. And, yeah. you know, um, but, you know, that's, 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 people need to hear that. Because there's a lot of people who are out there that are somewhere in the process, whether they're recreational or whether they're working, it's like things change. Right. And the the fishing evolution, um, you know, the way it changes um, is exactly what you said. There's a point where you feel feel like if you're not fishing, it's it's a waste. Yeah, exactly. You've spent all these years trying to perfect a craft that is pretty much imperfectible. Like, it's it changes it evolves so often and so quickly that I don't feel like I mean you can get to a point where yeah the only thing that there is left for me to do now is wait on the conditions to change and if I ever get to that point I'll I'll quit because that's when it I feel like that if you evolve with it you can never 100% perfect it you can't ever be as good as you're ever going to be at it, as long as it keeps changing, you keep changing with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 and, and, and the variables change. You know, like you said, there's, there's stuff that that, are, that are, you know is going to change on the light weather, but then there's other things that are going to change on yeah, if you can't see color, like temperature changes, like the frigging virus, like you know, so many different things. And, right. Yeah. Well, it's just like you, for instance, talking about going down there to the bend and starting to see fish in there for a change. I mean, instantly, did it not go through your mind? I wonder how many other spots have fish in them now again. Of course. You know, and so it's almost reinvigorating. Like, you probably can't wait to get back out there and go see how other things have been affected by this lack of traffic on the water. Yeah. You know, and how many, like, is Bonefish and Tarpon Trust paying attention to this right now? These are statistics that they could be using that they have no other way to gain. Like, there's no other way for them to, let's shut off, let's shut off all the boat traffic for two months and see how that affects the the fishery. You know, I mean, if I were in their shoes, I would be really how this is affecting the two species that they're working so hard to protect, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, I wonder, I wonder what the deal is. Maybe I'll make a call tomorrow. I was going to say, yeah, you might want to talk to them and get them on, uh, on here talking about what they've been doing. If anything, I mean, you know, this has all happened so quick and, um, I didn't, it didn't cross my mind that the, the boats being off the water for a few weeks would make this much difference. Um, so I wonder if it, I wonder if it's, you know, I'm I wonder sure if they're thinking about it. I'm sure best paying day is feeling a hell of a lot better without friggin' 20,000 boats running all over it. I'm, I'm right. sure. But I mean, I'm think about sure. how much the turtle, the turtle grass is going to come back. I mean, this could have like you know, lasting effects, positive effects, on the areas and the fisheries. And I think if if entities like Bonefish Tarpon Trust pay attention and uh, and put some numbers out there to let everybody know, I mean, even if it stops one more person from driving over the turtle grass flats and tearing up the you know tearing up the bottom, whatever. I mean, it, there's some positive stuff to come out of this. Yeah, didn't even think of it. I didn't think oh, like that, but. Yeah, that's a good way to pull the positives out. Now you're doing a um, you're doing a podcast. You were telling me with four other dudes. Yeah, so I've got a lot going on right now. We've got the charter business, the retail business. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to stay busy. You know how it is. Yeah. Uh, the, the charter business, the retail business, um, the nonprofit. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, and then obviously we're doing the cooking. I'm doing like in-house uh, chef events. People can then call, you know, for 40, 50 bucks a head, we'll do barbecue dinners with, you know, three sides or whatever for them and, uh, and come do it in their house and, you know, bring the smoke or whatever. Or if they want to do like a six or seven course uh, chef selection, um, we'll do it for like 180 to 200 bucks a head. I bring a sous chef with me, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's really a cool, uh, cool event. If you want to have like 20 people over at your house for supper, it's pretty cool. Um, and then on top of that, one of the guys that I talked to right when I first got back from LA and you got to understand, I wasn't on social media. My wife was doing some stuff for me while I was gone, but uh, six weeks not on social media is enough to ruin some businesses. So you try to have somebody kind of curtail that as much as possible. So she did a good job. But while I was gone, I got a bunch of messages, like hundreds of messages from people about stuff on Instagram. And one of them was from uh, a chef of a restaurant here in town called Edmonds. Uh, it's a great brewery, great restaurant. And uh, the head chef and, and owner's name is Bob Cook. And um, Bob had messaged me because he's got a line of sauces that are really cool. Um, it's called Burnt and Salty, which could, you know, it could, could describe just about anything in, in you and I's line of work. Mm -hmm. um, it's like an, av an average day for us, Burnt and Salty. But uh, he called and said, hey, I want you to check out these sauces. So I go down and meet him at, at a restaurant for lunch. And uh, we got to talking. And, and I was like, man, I'm sorry to get back to you for a long time. I was out in L.A. filming the show. Uh, by the way, don't tell anybody is what I told him. And, um, I told him what it was. And he said, man, why don't you let me throw your viewing party for the first episode? I was like, cool. So we had like 125 pe people over to Edmonds Oast outside. Uh, he pretty much cooked, you know, half the stuff on the menu and fed everybody, got a big screen TV and speakers and all set up. It was pretty cool. Um, and then we, we, after that, we became pretty good buddies. We started talking a lot. I go in there and, uh, he'll let me come in and, and cook in the kitchen with him at night and learn stuff. Uh, he, he shared his whole recipe book with me from the kitchen, which was cool. Very cool. Yeah. And he called me one day. He's like, dude, what do you think about doing a podcast? I was like, man, I'd love to, but I don't know where to start. I don't have a clue where to start. Yeah. And so you know how, how, how hard it was. I mean, you probably can just get on and Google and stuff. But like I said, I, I, I tend to stop at like the first thing on the page. Um, and so he goes, man, I'll do all that part. We'll just have some people over at our house and, uh, you know, we'll sit around with microphones and just bullshit. And that's really all we do. It's called roasting goats because we try to get people in on the show 
to interview them and talk to them about like current events or whatever, just like you and I are doing. But we try to get people that are like trendsetters in their industry or people, um, you know, that are really, really good at what to do, like goat as in greatest of all time. We try to get people like that in there. Um, uh, you know, uh, pioneers of their industry, people that, you know, for instance, we did one with a couple of the guys from two breweries here in town. And mm-hmm. one of, one of them, uh, he and his wife are really the, the only reason we're allowed to have breweries in Charleston that can sell alcohol on premise. Uh, they were real instrumental in changing two of the laws in South Carolina that prevented that. Um, and a lot of people didn't know that, that, you know, that's how long they've been around. And that was, uh, they were in the forefront of changing that industry. So, you know, and then we get them in there and ask them really bullshit questions like out of all the supernatural phenomenon, what's the most believable? I think that's a relevant topic. You know, I like to try to convince people that aliens are way more believable than Bigfoot. Right. You know, I know it doesn't have anything to do with brewing beer, but after you've had a few beers, it's a really fun thing to talk about with four dudes. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Yeah, I've noticed on the um, a lot of the episodes that we do here on the Real Guy podcast, um, people really enjoy um, the off-topic, like like a bunch of fishermen talking about music they grew up with. Exactly. You wouldn't think, you know, you would think, well, you know, you want to stay on the fishing topic, blah blah blah. No, people really want to know about your music taste and things like that. And, yeah, it's you know, it's fun yeah. to talk about stuff you don't get to talk about every day, you know. Right, right. You just people just you know you don't think about that kind of stuff. No, nope. You're right, and it's and it's. I mean, that it's the old fashioned way of how you get to know somebody, not right. just looking at their social media. Right, the old fashioned way, which is one of the reasons why I was trying to hold out to get you here in front of me. Only face to face. Relationship that you and I've had was at the lumber combat that I was so glad that you came to. Man, I came all the way down there. I, I hated it. I missed it the first. So Mike Goodwine turned me on to you a few years ago. Mike and I are boys. Uh, I'll tell you the first time I ever met Mike Goodwine. This is a great story. <clears throat> we were gonna fish a. I uh, know uh, uh, Ryan Rickert was gonna fish a tournament up here in Charleston, and Mike right. and I followed each other on 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 Facebook. And Mike called me. He said, "Look, man." My buddy's coming up there. I didn't know Rickard yet. I didn't know what a solid duty was, but I knew Mike. And, you know, vis-a-vis, if you like him, I like him. So he said, but he's coming up there to fish a tournament. Are you fishing? I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to be out of town for, for a different tournament. And um, he said, well, can you throw him a bone? Just, just shoot him a couple pin drops, whatever. I said, yeah, man, no worries. So I did. He cut a check. Had a... He what? Um, out of, you know, 90 boats. Hold on one second, Dag. I, I lost you there. I was like, hey, man, time to return that favor. He goes, what do you mean? I said, "We, uh, I'm coming down to fish a tournament uh, right there in Ruskin. Um, you mind hooking us up and giving us a couple pin drops? He goes, man, I'll do you one better than that. I'll get in the boat with you, and you come stay at my RV, at the RV park right there on the river in Ruskin. I was like, holy cow, man, this dude's hooking us up, right? right. So the, we get in the boat, me and him and my partner, uh, Ryan Tiernan, who I won a national championship with, great guy. We get in the boat, and I've got a bait caster with a uh, spinner bait left on it, uh, Redfish Magic left on it from Louisiana. And um, it was like two weeks after. I'd just gotten back, so I, that, that rod had just been in my boat the whole time. And I said, Mike, anybody ever throw bait casters at me? He goes, man, you ain't – I mean, you know, Mike, you ain't catching nothing on a 
<laughs> baitcaster, man, man, get out of here with that thing. You ain't catching nothing on that thing. And I was like, well, how about spinner baits? He goes, man, nobody throws spinner baits around it. Bro, bro, man, you, uh, man, you, y'all ain't gonna win this tournament. Y'all, you may as well just go on home. First cast, boom, twenty-six and a half inch fish on a baitcaster with a spinner bait. And Mike's like, take, take me back, take me back to the dock right now. <laughs> He's like, I learned something today. <laughs> And he needed, he needed all the bait that he has to catch for crying out loud. I know. It was hilarious. So I bring that up all the time. I was like, y'all know the only time I fished with Mike? And then, and he's like, oh, God, here comes that story. Yeah. But, um, but no, so, yeah, coming down there to LunkerCon was cool. I, you know, I talked to Mike about it. And I was like, you know, I don't want to just drive down there and drive back. Obviously, I want to have a few beers with the guys and, uh, and you know, be able to stick around and enjoy everything. So I threw the smoker in the truck and came down there. And uh, Mike and I fished for a day beforehand and then um, and then came over that night. And it was a great time. But, you know, you and I didn't get to sit down, really, because obviously it's your event. You were hammered with people all night long. Uh, I think I cooked a couple Boston butts and made sandwiches for folks. Um but it was it was a great event. I think y'all. Uh, I don't even know how many people you had there. I feel like it was like 500 or 800. So you had a lot of folks there. I, we, we, I got with the restaurant owner there, and we tried to figure out how many people were there, and he was thinking right at 500. With yeah, the, I felt like that looking in that outside area because everybody out there was there for your event. It, it wasn't like you know just haphazard people wandering in and finding it. It was like everybody was there for that reason. Uh, so it was, a, it was a great event. Yeah, I love that whole area over there in, in Tampa. Every time I go over there, um, the people are great. Participation is great. We always have a fun time. But one of the hard things about a long time is because there's so many people and you only have a few minutes you know, to spend, I was really trying to push the issue to trying to get you down here. Um, one, when you were going back and forth uh, to the Bahamas, I know that that was hectic and all that kind of thing. Yeah, man landing here in my territory i know and i was trying to like oh man i want to i want to get to know Andy guy a little bit better and um shit to this day um having a hard time putting that together but maybe with all this extra free time it looks like we're gonna have you going into the uh late spring and early summer maybe i can convince you to drive down and we'll go catch the carbon or something I was gonna say we'll do we'll do a swap out, man. You come stay at the house for a couple of days, and we'll cook and uh, and go catch some redfish and some trout, and maybe even some big bull reds. And then uh, one weekend I'll come down there and and uh, go catch a couple of tarpon with you. I don't want that, this is my thing though. I I know how it is. I don't particularly care to fish on my day off. You know, you know why would you go to office when it's your day off? And yeah. you and I both know that that's when something's probably gonna break when you go fun fishing. Um, so I don't I don't want to ask you to put you on the spot to, you know, make you go tarpon fishing. But I definitely want to get down there and hang out for a couple of days. Well, you know, under these circumstances, um, um, maybe this summer will be a little bit different because I, I feel you on that. You know, it's weird. It's, it's so, it, and, you know, being a professional guide, it's a, it's such a weird position you get put in because your friends and, and some of your you know distant family, mm-hmm. you want to spend time on the water with. But on the yep. other hand, you know, there's only so much energy that you actually have. Yeah, and, you know, I tell people all the time, because every day, it seems like every day at least, uh, somebody on the boat will say, so do you do you go fishing for fun? And they're really surprised when I say, no, we don't. I don't go fun fishing. And the first thing I say was, do you go to your office on your day off? And they kind of understand. But then when I tell them like this, I say, all right, let's think about this logically in a business, business perspective. Um, 
if you go fun fishing 10 days a year for five years, that's 50 days. If an average four hour trip is 500 bucks for me, that's $25,000 I could have made in those 50 days. Right. When that motor blows up, I wish I had the 25 grand instead of 50 days of going out there and just goofing off. Sure. You know, yeah. that's just the way I look at it business wise. Cause in 25 years, I mean, you can only imagine how many times I've been in that position where if I hadn't have gone to the sandbar that day, I could have gotten two extra trips in and I could pay for this lower unit that I just tore up today, you know? And I know it's, it's unhealthy to think about that you know, retrospectively, but that's the only way you can think about this business. And I'm sure you do it too. I, I look at things price wise. I'm like, Ooh, that that's a half a charter or that's a whole charter. Well, that's or, the difference between, you know, going out and buying stuff for your hobby or right. going out and buying stuff for your business. I mean, everything, um, whether we like it or not, I mean, we're in the fishing business. Yep. It comes down to dollars and cents. It has to. It's the only way you can stay in it. The, the longevity is not there for people that don't think about it. These dudes rolling around in $160,000 yellow fins with towers on them, I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how you can afford that payment. Because in times like this right now, that's going to be the boat that gets took back by the bank. Exactly. I'm, I'm in a 12-year-old Sterling that's been paid for for nine of them. Yeah. Nobody's coming to get that thing unless I sell it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't have to worry about that payment right now. That's, I just, I try to preach that to these young guys, you know, don't go spend it. I had, my first boat was $9,000, nine grand. Sure. I had a, it was a Baycraft, a blue Bay. I brought it. I don't know if you know who Ryan Higgins is, but it works for, uh, for Viking. He was captain of the year a couple of times. So Higgins, Higgins and I, uh, the first summer I moved to the keys, me and Higgins and a fellow named Brian Scott, who was one of the first eight guys at Linco when they first started, uh, the three of us moved to, to Isla Mirada together. Um, Higgins was a groomsman at my wedding. I was a groomsman at his wedding. B. Scott was in both those weddings. I mean, we're all super tight. And right. so Higgins had, uh, he was from Orlando and had this little 17 and a half foot Baycraft with a 60 Yamaha C series, probably the best series of motors ever built. I think I put 40 crazy uh but it was slow so it took twice as long to get everywhere so it's easy to put a bunch of hours on it you know right but um yeah i bought, I bought that little boat man and i try to tell these these new kids all the time you don't need a sixty thousand dollar flats boat when you don't even know if you're going to be in business next year right 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 you know it's it's yeah. just crazy they all it's it's keeping up with the joneses is what all these kids are trying to do man let me ask you do you feel do you do you feel bad for them now no because they had choices I don't either. And I was, I felt guilty that I didn't feel bad. But then I thought about all the days that these losers are laughing at me because I fish in a, uh, well, 17 years old now. Um, mm -hmm. Commercial skiff that I got out of New England that nobody has here. And trust me when I tell you, it's not the prettiest looking boat you ever saw. But for business and for my clients, it's the boat they have. And mm -hmm. these dudes, you know, we kind of pick fun at my boat and blah, blah, blah over the years. And, you know, I just keep my mouth shut and I keep working every single day. And then I watched. And those same dudes that were making fun of me seven, eight, nine years ago, I haven't seen in five years. Exactly. And, <laughs> and when I say I don't feel bad for them, I don't, don't take that the wrong way. I feel bad for anybody who can't pay their bills right now. Right. But. You cannot put yourself in this position. You can be prepared as a family man and a businessman and a fisherman. 
can do to be prepared is pay off the daggum boat first. You know, don't use that extra money and go buy. I mean, all the crazy stuff I see. Like, there's a guide in town that I have a ton of respect for. Uh, he used to work on the headboats before they all left here, right after Katrina. Um, and I love it because he was in a like a sea pro, and he bought a new Avenger, right? But he bought the Avenger, and instead of loading it up with $25,000 worth of options and saying, just tack it onto my loan, this dude gets one bare bones, no trolling motor, no power poles, no electronics, no radar. I mean, just bare bones, no radio in it. And as he saves up money through the summer, he's had it for two years now. As he saves up money through those first two summers, he starts adding stuff to the boat. I was like, see, that's the way you're supposed to do it. You don't add an extra $300 a month worth of payments so that you can have all the bells and whistles that, I mean, you and I have been doing it long enough. You don't need those things. And people forget the difference between needs and wants. I don't need a trolling motor. I don't need a power pole. Will I ever have a boat without them again? Hell no. (laughs) But you can get the job done without them. Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's the bottom line. Just because you don't like pulling an anchor doesn't mean that you have to have a power pole yeah. or two. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, at my age, I have to have power poles. At your age. Yeah. <laughs> my back, I got a 60-year-old back, brother. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's from pulling. Uh, Forty-seven-foot Julian screw, 3406 Caterpillar. And we didn't have a depth sounder. And we didn't have a GPS. And I'm talking about a charter boat out of probably the most popular marina in South Florida, other than sailfish at Singer Island. Bud Mary's Marina is more worldwide known, I think, than any other marina in the Keys. And this boat didn't even have electronics on it. Uh, We used to drop a rope down with the lead and knots to, to find out how deep we were when we couldn't see the edge of the reef. And we would use what's called a range. And I try to tell people all, all the time, it's a lost art and you know how South Florida is. You can line a radio tower up on this hotel and get in this depth and you're on the, you're on the spot. I mean, the spot, a 12 foot circle. Sometimes the GPSs wouldn't put you on the spot. Like you'd be on that spot. Exactly. You know, so we use ranges all the time to find like the 89 line. And I, 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 I say 80 line, 89 line, 99 line all the time to people. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, that's before, you know, when you talked about clicks and stuff, that was before we had GPSs. We yeah. all would just use the Latin longitude lines. And they're like, oh, really? People use those not just on maps? I'm like, no, hell no. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Electronics have come so far. There's people out there that have no clue what to do without them. Oh, no. It's, it's crazy, man. We've, we've become so reliant on them. And I'm guilty, too. Like, you know, I'll, I'll postpone a trip a couple hours if the radio goes out just so I can go to West Marine and put a new radio in it real quick. You know, I just... It's the creature comforts that help me enjoy the days out there that aren't easy fishing, you know? Yeah, and there's plenty of those. There's plenty of those. But I will tell you, though, running this running this nonprofit, is, uh, it's put a lot of things in perspective the past few years, helping people out that are in really tough situations. And slow, slow down a little bit because a lot of my audience probably doesn't know about your, your nonprofit. And um, so talk to us a little bit about that. Explain exactly what the nonprofit is and what you've been doing. So, uh, it's, it's really tough to explain without going way back to Hurricane Harvey. Um, we all sit around and watch natural disasters happen and 
I mean, you're, you're not a human being if you don't at some point say, I wish there's something I could do, or I wish I knew what to do, or, you know, you just, on some level, you just want to help. Right. And these fishing tournaments, a lot of people don't understand that you, you, we really develop some lifelong, like deep rooted friendships with these dudes. Cause like the elite series, for instance, it's one man per boat. Uh, we developed a, a team after uh, the first event and there's six of us on that team. And I might, if I didn't talk to those dudes for 10 years, if they called me, I would drive all the way to Louisiana and I'd chop off a leg for them because I know they do the same for me. I mean, you just develop these relationships, with these people, because you're with them in the boondocks for a whole week. You're supposed to not trust each other, but then you wind up developing this trust. You're staying in the same houses. You're eating together. You're cooking together. Uh, again, food, bringing people together. Um, and so when Harvey was approaching fast, I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I really don't know what to do, but let's at least just put together a U-Haul truck full of stuff and send it down there. Um, things that they're going to need. And at that point in time, you know, the list has changed now that I'm way more educated on what people actually need after a natural disaster. Well, how, but, many, how many, how many, how many disasters have you provided relief for? Uh, we did Hurricane Harvey. We did Hurricane Michael. Um, and we did Florence and okay. then, and Dorian now. But for Harvey, for Harvey, though, I didn't have I didn't have a 501c3. I didn't have an organization like I didn't even know about the Cajun Navy at that point in time. Now there's a bunch of them and it's all convoluted and whatever. But it started out, you know, the media created that term. It's catchy. I'll admit it is catchy, but it's it's legit what every neighbor should be doing anyway is going out and helping your other neighbors. So, you know. Coonasses, as I like to call them, and they like to be called my friends in Louisiana. Uh, obviously, they took to the streets in their boats, and they went and helped people during Katrina. I didn't even know about that. You know, that's how naive we are up here on the East Coast because we deal with hurricanes two and three and four. You know how it is. Shoot, yeah. I, one year y'all had like six in one season. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so <clears throat> basically, my wife and I we went to a local bar here right beside the house. We said uh, on social media. I said, we're going over here. If y'all want to bring stuff, this here's the list of things we need. If y'all want to bring some stuff, put it in my truck. Uh, we'll load the truck up, and then uh, we'll do that a few times. And fill up U-Haul, and I'll pay somebody to take it down there. I, I don't really have time to go down there. It's the end of my busy season. I need to save up money for the winter. And I don't. I wouldn't even know where to go. I could send him to Buddy Mine's house, and he'll help get the stuff out. That's all I know to do. And one of my friend's moms uh, commented and said, Jamie, you ought to go down there. And I just told her the same thing again. I was like, I, I just don't really have the money. She said, well, I'll pitch in the first 200 bucks. What's your PayPal? That one sentence on Facebook changed my life forever. What do you mean that email or whatever changed your life forever? Well, you know, I've, I've never, I've never been, I've always been somewhat philanthropic. I've just never, I've never known how to take action and how to go make stuff happen. And, you know, all this time, I didn't know that all I needed was just a little, a little shove, a little push. Um, and I know out there listening, a ton of people want to help when situations arise. And I know the number one thing that goes through their mind is I don't financially, how, how do you, how do you go help? I don't have the money to go help. And right. all of a sudden, knowing that somebody else had enough faith in what I was doing and trust in that the money would go where it was supposed to go. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a pretty confident guy. I'm a, I'm a type A personality, just right. like you. I mean, most captains are, 
But with regards to, to doing that, I mean, that's a huge unknown. You're just going to hop in the truck and go down into the middle of a hurricane in Texas. You don't know where you're staying. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to help. You don't know, you know how you're going to pay for all the stuff that you're going to need along the way. I mean, it's just there's so many unknowns, but the main unknown is uh, financially how you how you're going to handle it. I mean, there's a ton of people out there listening also that have plenty of money and still don't know where to where to put it. You know how how to use that money right. to do what they need to do. So um, when I read that statement on there, and I, I almost didn't respond because I just I just I was just like, no, Val, her name's Valerie. Uh, we call her Val. She's a sweetheart. Um, and she's, uh, she's actually a nurse, and she's on the front lines right now with this coronavirus, and her husband's a doctor. Uh, I mean, they're just incredible people to start with. But I said, um, you know, I almost just didn't respond with the PayPal account because I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do with the 200 bucks besides, you know, pay for a U-Haul or something like that. I don't know. It's just, you know, it was all, it was all up in the air. I mean, Chip, what are you going to do? Uh, right. I, I just responded with the Redfish Mafia PayPal account, and um, – I didn't think anything else of it. And, you know, within an hour, I mean, people had come over to the, to the uh, bar. We had put it on social media. We were going to be there. So they had come over and, uh, you know, back then also I want to point out that I didn't know what stuff people needed and what stuff they didn't need. In retrospect, I would have told people not to bring paper towels and toilet paper because it was like a bunch of really light stuff that took up a ton of space in my truck. Um, but I mean, somebody brought over like 3000 toothbrushes. Somebody brought over you know, 1,500 uh, little mini travel things of toothpaste. And I, it didn't cross my mind that that's stuff they, that they would need. But when I got down to the convention center right there in Lake Charles um, and I dropped those off, I mean, the people, it was like Christmas morning. You know, the Red Cross wasn't there. I, will, I want to point out, you know, the Red Cross is great for one thing, and that is collecting blood, doing blood drives, and getting blood where it needs to go. They are uh-huh. the absolute shittiest organization on the planet to donate cash to. Nine cents on the dollar gets to where it needs to be. So my priority is always during these things. And this was the first time I found that out. They were so stoked to see me before the Red Cross had gotten there because the Red Cross, if they're already there when you show up for, with stuff, they either won't take it or they take it and kibosh it and put it in storage and like dole it out three days later after these people hadn't brushed their teeth for three days. Um, and wow. this, this was all like new information to me. So it was a, it was a five or six day period, seven day period, I guess, from Sunday to Sunday, there was just sensory overload. It was just so much information and so much stuff going on. Um, and I was just trying to take it all in and I didn't realize how important it would be that I was taking notes and keeping a journal and doing like the Facebook logs and stuff like that at the time. Uh, but that wound up being really imperative, um, for, if, if for no other reason, uh, to be able to go back and look at all the addresses that people were sending me and then double check them on the list with the, with the dispatch and make sure that people were actually uh, getting picked up, you know? Uh, and it turns out, I think it was 34 or 35 different calls that I couldn't get to in a five day period, um, that I sent to my buddy, um, Bobby Miller and, uh, and every single one of them got picked up. So, um, you know, it's just, it's one of those deals, man. You talk about changing your life forever. A lot of people say that about a lot of different things. It really made me realize uh, a bunch of stuff about myself, about humanity, about other people. Um, You know, I'll I'll never be one of those guys to bitch and moan and complain about something that I have the ability to change again. You know, I I tell my wife all the time, if you can't change it, I'll listen to the complaints about it. But if you can change it, instead of spending time complaining about it, get up and change it. You know? Right. 
right, uh, right, right. It's just, and, and now don't take that, they don't take that role enough. I think, I don't think, and I think it's because they don't realize how easy it is to do. Sometimes it, it's, it's a lot easier to do it than people think you can make a lot of changes in your life and, and other people's. Right, right, right. Well, most people that get put in the situation, um, you know, that you were put yourself in multiple times now with these disaster reliefs, um, by the time they learn all this stuff, it's over and they're not able to use the knowledge and education from what just happened for the next say episode. Well, so the one thing about it is it's always different that that, that none of them will ever be replicated. Like every hurricane is going to hit differently in a different place. I mean, but there's a lot of things that overlap like the dispatch system, for instance. Um, but I mean, if you fast forward to Dorian, you know, we hopped in the truck to go to, uh, to Harvey and, um, we took a boat, chainsaws, ropes, life jackets, uh, an AR-15. I mean, during states of emergency, especially in Texas, you're allowed to carry um, open carry. And it's imperative that you do that. But and I didn't know till we got there that you need to travel with two boats, two people in each boat. You have to have an approach boat and you have to have a backup boat because uh, let's say you, you're in a swift current and the motor dies. You got to have a backup boat that can help you, not to mention there's there's plenty of instances where you get shot at because people in desperate times do desperate things uh and so they want your water that you have on the boat they want your fuel they want the boat itself you know it's just uh it's a it's a it's a very um third worldish incident even if you're here at home in the u.s so did, you know did, did did that happen to you did someone actually shoot at you while you're out there no nobody actually shot at me uh, my buddy bobby got shot at a couple other people i know got shot at um you know, there was, I mean, there was people in Katy, Texas, it was so bad that there was people shooting themselves in their attics to keep from drowning. And so remember <laughs> when I said, uh, I learned, I learned a lot about other people. This is when you, you got to think to yourself, you know, stay calm, stay cool, stay collected. Instead of shooting my wife and my child and myself in the, in the head, in, in my attic, I would, you know, hopefully I would have the bright idea of shooting three holes in the roof to get out of the attic, to keep from drowning. You know, so we, I mean, there was a lot of crazy stuff that went down. Um, there was one guy that was left at a house. I think it was in Orange, Texas, uh, right. because they had like 55 guns in the attic. And so they left him there and he was a little bit mentally unstable to start with, um, come to find out. But they left him in the house to protect the house to keep looters from stealing the guns. So when the police and stuff started coming around, you know, this guy's a little bit off his rocker to start with, like I said. He starts right. shooting at the cops and stuff with the guns that he's supposed to be keeping <laughs> people from stealing. Just in case things, you know, don't get crazy enough, the crazy end up making it even crazier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talk, you, you know, sane people make bad decisions when the shit hits the fan. Crazy people make even worse decisions. <laughs> and you are in the front line and you're experiencing this over and over again with people? Yeah, it just, uh, it, it was nuts. I mean, the things we saw, you know, I wouldn't take anything for the experience. It taught, like I said, it taught me a lot and it changed my life. But there's things that we saw that I, I don't ever want to see again. I wish, I wish I hadn't seen. I wish, you know, I don't wish them on anybody. Um, right. You know, we, we passed a truck one day and there was an old man. And the water is like, you know, if you're sitting in your F-250, that's not let's just say a regular F-150 standard issue. Uh, and the water is like, right, you know, right below your chin, uh, top of the steering wheel barely showing. And the windows are up. The water's coming up. We've already looked at the top, the uh, the water flood release schedule from uh, from the dams, 
which mm-hmm. is another thing that baffled me. The people that lived there weren't even looking at this flood schedule. Like they think because it stopped raining and the water's going down that it's not going to flood. And I'm talking to the lady at the water control at the dam and she's like, we got to release water out of this dam to keep it from breaching. And so it's going to come up six feet in the next five hours. And we're mm. trying to convince these people of this. And half the people that we tried to get to leave their house when it was, you know, waist deep, they're like, no, we're fine. We're staying. We're going to the second floor. We had to go back and get them later, but you know, they just wouldn't listen to us. Um, right, but there was right. that, that one old man though. He's just sitting. I don't know if he had skipped his meds that day or if they got wet or, you know, maybe he had a little bit of dementia or sundown. I don't know, but he's just chilling. We're in the boat and we drive past him and he's just sitting there. The, I mean, the trucks obviously stopped because it's, it's covered up with water almost. And right. we can, we can just see his head and the windows are up. And we're like, dude, what are you doing? He just waves at us. I'm like, what in the, what is wrong with this guy? You know, so he got a huh. death wish. We had, we had to um, open his door, which was really hard to do. We had to get his door open. And then we had to pick him up. And lo and behold, his cell phone and his ID were above the visor. And it only had one phone number in it, if that tells you anything. It had one phone number in it. And it had one incoming call from an 800 number. It was probably, you know, that lady, Ann. And she was trying to sell him the, the same uh, Medicare insurance that she tries to sell me when she calls from California. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so we called right? that number and, and, you know, a buddy of mine took a picture of the guy uh, and he put it on Facebook and said, uh, does anybody know this fella? We just pulled him out of a truck and he can't tell us what his name is or, you know, where he's supposed to be or what his family. And, uh, we, you know, we took, put the picture of his driver's license up there. And I remember the first response, somebody goes, um, yeah, I just Googled him and uh, he's a sex offender. Now, if oh, you geez. know anything about the sex offender list, number one, this dude's like 75 years old. He could have got caught pissing in a bush like 50 years ago. Right. You know? The right. sex offender list, I think now it's changed to where there's like different degrees of it. But I mean, they, I got caught peeing outside of a McDonald's one time when I was hammered in college and they threatened to put me on the sex offender list. Um, so they were like, yeah, you know, screw that guy. I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to go get him from the shelter right now. And I'm going to go put him back in his truck, put a seatbelt back on him. You're right. I was like, what kind of shit is that? Why? Who who cares? You know, you're just going to let him drown in the truck because he's on the sex offenders list. Right. (laughs) You know, it's just people, people say and do weird things in, in, uh, during weird times. Um, well, let me, let me take, let me take this disaster relief and to even, crazier situation now the the dorian storm out in the bahamas out in the abacos mm-hmm. um i mean what was what was that like i mean we we're actually going to a different country um yes yeah, so and what trying I was to uh, provide was, relief i'm sorry i didn't mean to let me interrupt you no i was just saying you're going to a different country trying to provide relief so you're still dealing with you know people that you know aren't mentally all together you got this crazy um you know, destruction and people without homes and food, but now you're in the Bahamas. How did that change things? Well, and you know, that's the weird thing about it with Harvey, our number one priority, the only thing that we really knew we were going to be doing was the rescue portion, you know? And then all of a sudden we, in three days we raised 32 grand and we're like, all right, so it's clearly not going to cost us that much to do these rescues. What do we do? So we started talking to churches, uh, started helping them figure out, uh, the cheapest way to feed people good food um, started figuring out that, you know, for, for 60 cents a person, I, we can feed them chicken bog 
or rice and tomatoes or succotash or something instead of doing a hamburger and a hot dog. It's a whole lot easier to cook in a big pot, whatever. So we figured that part out. And uh, but it's still, you know, the rescue portion was still on. The, that was the forefront of what we were doing. Well, then Dorian came around. Obviously, I can't send a team and you got you got to fast forward two years too. Uh, since Harvey. Um, I now have a team of airboat guys that uh, we can deploy at any point in time. I've got a team of girls that do dispatch for us. I've got another team of folks that do nothing but look at topographical maps and stuff for us. But with Dorian, all of that was irrelevant. None of that right. helped at all. Um, right. So we're sitting here, you know, I've, I've, we've been to, I've been to Abaco, I don't know, 25 years. I've been going down there since I was freshman in college for various things. We used to go down there. Uh, we'd stop and get fuel on the way to different places to go fishing all kinds of stuff. And then turns out my wife's family has a house in Hopetown. Mm-hmm. And um, basically <clears throat> their house, we, we happened to see uh, on a, a Reddit post, somebody had some overhead footage uh, from a drone and we happened to see that their house was still intact. And I was like, right. all right, well, the hurricane, it's already passed there, but it's not in South Carolina yet. So I couldn't like, I could just hop, like hop a plane and fly through the storm to get to the Bahamas. So we had to wait it out. Uh, I couldn't go down there until the fifth day. Um, a friend of mine that's a lawyer here in Charleston or in, in Orangeburg has a private plane. And uh, his pilot actually worked nonstop for about 24 hours um, to get his tail numbers approved. And he called me out of the blue. He was like, hey, I know you're trying to get to the Bahamas. Do you want to fly with me? I said, yes, perfect. So we hopped on this thing and landed in Treasure. Um, right. if, you, if, if you're familiar with Dabaco's, You've got Marsh Harbor is like the central hub and it's, mm-hmm. it's connected by land to a lot of other places like treasure. Um, right. But then you've got like 10 or 11, 12 other little islands right around there within 15, 20 miles that depend on everything that's going on in Marsh Harbor. Well, Marsh right. Harbor airport was still under five feet of water at that point in time. So we landed in treasure. It looked like a war zone. There was a thousand people on the runway. You know, everybody's out there like it's 95 degrees the fence is gone. The main part of the airport's completely gone. Flying in there, I couldn't even, I've been there so many times, it's not even funny. I couldn't even tell you. I can't count how many times. And I couldn't even tell where I was flying in there. Like there, right, I, there right. was zero landmarks. It was the craziest <clears throat> thing I've ever seen. So I got real lucky. I got out of the plane and, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen when I got there. But yeah, the house looked okay. But if it was slap full of mold and stuff, I wasn't going to be able to stay there. So I went to a, a local place here. They opened it up. They didn't even have power, and they did a handwritten uh, receipt. They didn't even charge my card for like two weeks. Um, well, but I, I let went. Me, let me let me stop you for a second. So yeah. the Treasure Key Airport, uh-huh. I mean, is a is a long way from Hopetown. Well, and that's what I'm getting at. So I went to this Half Moon Outfitters, and I just stocked up on everything that I could possibly need to live on the beach for 10 days by myself. I had like water filtration devices, you know, little things you pee in and then you could drink it 10 minutes later, whatever. I had like bugs, you know, uh, nets and all that. I mean, I had everything that you could possibly need, all kinds of MREs. So I had these two giant book bags and then I had this K2 backpack cooler um, with a bunch of insulin because my wife was like, this could be used as a bargaining tool if you find yourself because the news all you were seeing on the news was that these haitian gangs were like shooting up the gas stations and stealing all the guns from the hardware stores and all this stuff so i didn't know what i was in store for i got so lucky when i got off this plane 
I saw a fella that I'd seen at the airport a hundred times. I ran up to him. I gave him a big hug. I said, brother, I need your help badly. And Pete said, what do you need, Jamie? I said, man, I, I just need you to get me safely um, to Hotel. And he no, goes, Pete, was be- Pete was Bahamian? Yeah, Pete's Bahamian. Okay. He works. At, he, he typically works at Marsh Harbor Airport. Okay. But obviously it was closed, so he was just kind of trying to help conduct the chaos over there at Treasure because it was absolute chaos. He literally said, hop over the fence. The fence was laying down. He said, hop mm-hmm. over the fence and get in the back of that pickup truck with your bags and lay down. And he said to Pastor um, Sebastian, Pastor Sebastian, uh, I, gave, I gave Pete 100 bucks. I said, thank you. Got in the truck, and I, I told Sebastian, Sebastian, I'll give you 100 bucks if you can get me to – because the closest ferry dock right there, if you want to skip being on the land where everything was going down, is Green Turtle Ferry Dock. Right. And um, he said, no, I'm taking you over here to Calcutta Basin because uh, Spanish Spanish whales um, didn't get hit at all. Um, they, they, so what they were doing is they were evacuating people out to a big, uh, big shrimp trawler that was out in the sea of Abaco. And then when it got full, they were going to take all those people to Spanish Wells. So huh. I got to, to the dock at Calcutta basin, you know, all the boats are destroyed. They're all like jacked up. Just the same stuff you see after, you know, after Andrew or after any major cat five cat, cat six, right, I just what this one was. But, chaos. Right. Oh my God. This is the most unbelievable stuff you've ever seen. And, um, I mean, even after seeing the stuff after Katrina, it just not nothing prepared me for what was going down over there. And, you know, it was a 45-minute ride in the back of this truck, and all, all I could smell was decomposing flesh the whole time. Right, uh, right. Animals, people, the whole nine yards. I mean, it was awful. And so I hopped on this little boat uh, with these guys and told them what I was doing. And they said, well, we'll you know, we'll run you over there. Um, I happened to get in that Spanish whales boat with them, and there was a, um, uh, a nurse that had – a bunch of medicine, but he's Bahamian. And so he, he couldn't just like hand it to me to take to Hopetown. He had to put it in the hands of an actual physician. Um, huh. And I knew there was a physician in Hopetown. So it worked out perfectly. He got on the boat with me. I had my insulin. He had this other medication. We got out right there in Hopetown. You know, I gave them a hundred bucks and said, thank you. And the guy tried not to take it. And he was like, man, it's not going to do me any good. We can't spend money anywhere. I said, well then, you know, use it for fuel or whatever you need for somebody else to help them out. So I was just trying to pay it forward a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, I think at that time before we left, we had raised probably 50 grand. Um, and it was the same sort of deal, you know, but this time we had a website and the 501c3 paperwork where everybody gets a receipt and it's tax deductible. So it was way more organized than the first few times that we did this, uh, this type of effort. Um, but then I got there and of course, MasterChef had just ended airing in, uh, in I think August or September. Mm-hmm. Right. And this storm is on the second so it was, it was, you know, a week after it stopped airing, I landed in Hooktown and first person I see is a guy from Charleston. And he was like, Jamie, I'm so glad to see you. I said, what can I do? I'm, I'm here to, I'm here to help, man. I'm here to just do whatever. He said, well, one of the guys that we had cooking, um, and I think that at that point in time, there's only like 350 people on the island, maybe 250 people. Um, mm-hmm. but it started increasing every day. And okay. He said, uh, the guy that we had cooking just left and we had nobody to cook. Nobody knows how to cook for this amount of people. Will you take over the, the food for the island? And wow. it, I was just like, whoa, what? you know, I, it was unanticipated. I said, yes, obviously not knowing. Nothing else, like, you know, it, nothing like getting thrown in with the bulls, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, hell, 
uh, I'll figure it out, you know, just like anything else. And um, I talked to a couple people that, that cooked at some of the restaurants on the island and they were, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want the pressure. And I said, well, look, I'll, I'll be in charge. Uh, I just need y'all in here to help me cut stuff and help me, you know, get stuff in pots and serve. And we set up a rotation uh, schedule where um, volunteers, like second homeowners, basically we, we set it up so that uh, they would have to give three hours a day um, to the community in order to be able to eat the meals that we were supposed to be serving to the locals. And right, that way, right. if they were there to fix up their, you know, second homes, um, we could get them to come in and help us serve the food to everybody. Um, right. you know, and the hardest part is, is doing it in a sanitary environment. So, you know, you got, we had two places, two kitchens, basically soup kitchens set up on the Island. And one of them was at Firefly or Firefly uh, Sunset Resort, um, right. which is on the South end or almost, mm-hmm. it's just South of mid Island. And they didn't receive hardly any damage to the restaurant and stuff. The bar was gone. Two of the cabins were gone. But the way it's built, the actual kitchen for the restaurant is somewhat underground and it's all rock. So it's like the kitchen backs up to, and has a wall that's uh, that's just bedrock. So that kitchen was pretty much untouched uh, with the exception of like uh, one, one hood and one air conditioner, which we had fixed in two days. So we set up a kitchen wow, there very good. and then the sailing club at the North end um, is just like a, a home kitchen, but it's an open air kitchen. So it had like one stove. We didn't have hot water. We had uh, one stand up, you know, refrigerator freezer. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really all we needed when it was only 200 people on the Island. Now, typical population, average population when everything's ready to roll is like 2000 to 2,500 on this Island. So right. as people started coming back, construction crews started coming back. Um, Haitian workers started coming back, you know, everything started getting up and running the ferry service and all that. It started increasing exponentially, um, how many meals we were doing. So at first I was doing about 750 to 800 meals a day out of each kitchen. And then all of a sudden, uh, by the end of that week, I think we were doing like, uh, 1400 meals a week out of each kitchen. Wow. Um, No, no. Let's see. I think we were doing, I think we were doing almost 5,000 out of each kitchen. Wow. Um, and then by the time I left, we were doing 1,400 a day out of each kitchen, which was uh, 21 weeks later. But we, so what I did when I left, um, you know, I didn't want to leave them hanging. I really didn't right. know what to do. I reached out to some of the people that were on MasterChef with me. Um, and I said, look, I need a hand. I can fly y'all to the Bahamas. So at that point in time, in that first week, I, I called my wife. I said, listen, uh, this is the day I need to get home. I need you to figure out a way for me to get there. So she got me set up with this plane that was full of pot cake dog, like a mud in the Bahamas is called pot cake. So it's full of pot cake dogs and cats. I felt right, like, right. yeah, I, I felt like I was in planes, trains, and automobiles or something. I was, you know, hemmed up in this plane with a bunch of dogs and cats and shit. And, but she got me home. But in the meantime, we got to know the girl that was getting those dogs out of there, um, she was basically, they were, there were teams of people that were just wrangling these stray dogs, bringing them to the U.S. legally, and then uh, getting them vaccinated and everything, and then quarantining them for two weeks, and then finding them homes. Um, and we got hooked up with her, and she got us hooked up with this guy named Peter, who is a pilot, has his own plane. And Peter started, he basically said, I'll fly as many trips as y'all need me to do. It's 1800 bucks a trip. That pays for the fuel to get there and back. And so it's an eight-seat plane. What I started doing is putting every week I'd put a chef on the plane and then we would just fill it up with all this stuff. So we were getting all these donations 
uh, like my number three guy in charge um, is in the uh, in the organization with me. He's got a warehouse in Jupiter. So it's right. about 45 minutes from the Fort Lauderdale uh, uh, private airport. So basically we would get everything shipped to Don's warehouse. Don would find out, I'd text him, tell him what day we were leaving. Uh, that morning he would truck everything up to um, the uh, airplane hangar and put it on the plane. And then we would like, we'd get on the plane and then they would shove the rest of the stuff in there to where if we crashed, like we, we couldn't even get out if something happened. But we hmm. would land in Marsh Harbor and the dudes on the runway would have to open the door and pull some stuff out so we could get out. <laughs> yeah, throw all the rules out the window and just do whatever you got to do, huh? Shoot, I didn't even go through customs until like the fifth trip. <laughs> now that, that brings no, me there to was the nobody, There was nobody there. There was no fence. There was no nothing. You couldn't land at the public airport. You had to land at the private one. Um, well, that's what um, that's what I wanted to ask you next. Like, I mean, so you're out there in the Abacos. I'm very familiar, you know, with the whole um, Abaco Island chain and how everything works over there. But one of the things that um, I think Americans don't get is basically there's no real government over there. Did you have to like? Um, did you have to work with the Bahamian government? Did you just avoid the Bahamian government? I mean, how did how did you manage? Well, they had bigger fish to fry. Let's say that. So, um, I recent, I recently, uh, I guess, in the bite magazine came out about a month ago and they had an article in there on me where we did an interview and I, to, to get prepared for that, I had to go back and look at what the actual Bahamian government, how, how they set everything up. And what's crazy is that their GDP is, is terrorism, right? Right. It's 99% of their income as a country. Well, you break it up, I think, I mean, there's like 11,000 islands, but there's only like 810 that are inhabited, something like that. Some, I don't know, what, you know, don't quote me on the number, but it's it's, it's a lot of islands. Right, but I feel I you. There's only like a half a dozen islands that the cruise ships go to, right? Right. Those half a dozen create 99% of their tourism-based economy. Well, the right, way they right. break up the help and the aid is if your island – creates 20% of the tourism-based uh, economy or income, then you're going to get 20% of the aid. So instantly in the first two weeks when I heard that from somebody, I was like, you know, they, these out islands, they're, they're, you know, they're going to get left in the dust unless second and homeowners I step in and outside sources and NGOs, which uh, a non-government organization, unless they step in and help, they're going to get left in the dust. Um, right. I don't want to say the Bahamian government's crooked, I've never seen uh, anything firsthand other than, you know, I had a, I had a customs agent. I probably shouldn't say this. I had a customs agent on payroll since on day five uh, in West end so that we could get our barges and everything over there. We sent over half million dollars with the heavy equipment. Um, right, the first right, barge right. we sent over there, we had a 70 ton crane on it um, so that we could move all the, all the sailboats and stuff that were on the, um, on the, uh, the pads where you, the ferry docks used to be. <laughs> That are now right, just right. gravel pits. Um, but I had, I was paying that dude 300 bucks a week so that my guys that were going over there in boats and stuff, they could basically just call from 30 miles away and get waved on through and not have to worry about stopping with customs. Um, right. And you, you, know, know, you, don't have, you don't have to call the Bahamian government crooked or corrupt or anything. That's just the way it works. In I mean, it is. Every, every, people don't think about it, but Bahamas is a third world country. It might not seem like it when you're over there in Hopetown, but it is. you're not over there in Hopetown around 
the, the people that work in Hopetown don't live in Hopetown. Put it that way. Yeah, you know? right. Most of no, I've tried to explain that to people over the years. And not only um, is that hard for people to understand, it's also hard for people to understand that the outer islands that are off the mainland mm-hmm. um, are totally disconnected. It's like so tribal, you know, oh, yeah. where the people in Green Turtle um, are helping the people in Green Turtle. The people yeah. in Hopetown are trying to help the people in Hopetown. It's not like the United States where it's like, okay, let's go down to South Florida and everybody, you know, cumulatively can help. Yeah, I mean, they're segregated by water and it's like a tribal thing. Yeah, the first barge we sent, um, we were actually having to mark all the stuff, Hopetown, that was going to Hopetown. And we wound up getting in arguments with folks and stuff because uh, it was a barge that was being split between Man of War and Hopetown. Right. And they were like, well, we don't want this going to Hopetown. And, and, and then other people were like, well, we don't want this stuff going to Man of War. I'm like, if it's going to help somebody, it's going to help somebody. You know, but yeah. you're right. It really is a, it's a, it's a clicky island chain. And I mean, there's people that live in Marsh Harbor that have never been out of Marsh Harbor that don't even know how far it is to go to Hopetown. You know, right. there's people. Right. Uh, but and the, the best thing that I can to illustrate how the rough parts of Marsh Harbor are regularly, like the mud. Do you remember right. that well that song "Welcome to Jamrock"? Yeah. Do you remember the? I remember watching the music video like 15 years ago when it came out, and they were in the ghettos of, Trenchtown. of uh, Jamaica. Yeah, in Trenchtown. Right. And one side of the street's just like barrios, and then the other side of the street was just like huge piles of trash. Right. That's that's what the the bad parts of Marsh Harbor look like. Yep. Yep. You know they always yep. have, and people don't realize that they think, "Oh, it's the Bahamas. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful." Right. But it's a third world country, and with third world country comes third world country government, which basically means the the, the people that are in the government are going to get rich. The people that are rich are going to stay rich. And the best thing for them is for everybody else to stay broke and need them. And so the the way that they hold their thumb on these outer islands is with the power system, the power grid. That's literally the only thing that was still governmental about Hopetown was that they got their power from Marsh Harbor. Um, They don't get their power from Marsh Harbor anymore. And they may never get their power from Marsh Harbor again, the way things are going. Hopefully, um, between all the NGOs that have been helping and all the money has been raised, uh, we're going to be able to put in the ground power on that Island and possibly, I, I don't want to, you know, empty promises and all that. Hopefully in the end, they'll wind up with a liquid nitrogen cooled, uh, solar system similar to that on Baker's Bay. That'd that's, be cool. That's, the, be that's cool. the end goal. Um, yeah. but now what we're running into is that like, uh, around Sandra and Dan's house, my wife's aunt and uncle, they live on the North End, and a lot of people have, haven't even gone back to see their houses and are just putting them up for sale, sight unseen. They're like, I don't want to go back. You know? Right. Um, right. It's crazy. Like, there's there's so many absolute steals. Like, you can get a house in downtown Hopetown right now for like $300,000. Right, right, right. It's, I mean, I'm yeah. talking about one that's still there and livable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tell you, the, um, the Bahamas is, um, God, there's two sides to the coin. Like we had a house in Treasure Key since like 1983, I want to call it. Mm-hmm. And um, being on the mainland all the time is, um, you know, you develop relationships with a lot of the Bahamians that are in those small Bahamian towns on the west side of the island and places that the tourists just don't see. And 
because you develop the relationships with them and you've gone to those neighborhoods and you know them, then you can kind of um, read between the lines on, right. you know, what the government actually does for the people there. And in those small towns, I mean, basically it's obsolete. There is no government support. Correct. So it's hard, it's hard for me to believe that the Bahamians were able to keep the civil civility that they were able to keep. Um, I think that was a feat in itself. Yeah. And you know, the only time, uh, in all my, all my travels over there, I think I went down five or six times and, um, I was there for a total of like maybe 45 or 50 days. I got to count them up. But the only time I really ran into the government at all was, um, when they basically, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. You're looking good. Um, they basically came over, you know, talking about that mud area, um, Cholera in, in the 1850s, cholera wiped out the whole population on Hopetown. Uh, it was a really big thing. As simple as cholera is to fix, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that first week, about halfway through the week, um, the Bahamian government came over and they had, uh, I guess, the, the defense force with them. Um, and what would be similar, like our Coast Guard was with them. And they, you know, they got off with machine guns and they're all in their camo and, they're, you know, marching up the street to the fire station, which was the headquarters. And, uh, oh, you know, we're shutting this down. No more NGOs. Everybody off the island. There's going to be a cholera outbreak, blah, blah, blah. And then they saw, all right, we all got a doctor here. You got nurses here. We had enough cholera, uh, you know, vaccination or or antibiotics or whatever, um, treatment medication for every single soul on the island. And after about an hour, they were like, all right, you guys have got this thing squared away more than any other island we've been to. So y'all just keep doing your thing. That was the only time I really saw any kind of government intervention. Now the prime minister came a couple times and like toured the island. I'm not sure if he does anything else. I mean, you know, I just, I just don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure what there's anything that he actually <laughs> could have did or was supposed to do or anything except I guess show up. Yeah, but, I don't um, know. And then, you know, they all have these, these crazy names like, you know, Supreme leader or, uh, you know, most righteousness. I mean, they all have these like crazy names for their, whatever their position is in the political realm. Um, but he was the only one that I actually saw there and he landed in a helicopter, basically the baseball field on the North end. They put a big H out there out of plywood and painted it yellow. So the helicopters that came in and out uh, would be able to land and they'd know where to land and all that. And he just, he landed and got in a, you know, in the four wheeler and, or in the golf cart and did a tour of the island and it was gone. But, you know, I'm not sure whatever came of that. Um, but you know, I know that I know that, that in in this instance, I think they were better off not having uh, any of the interference or and or help because I think it would have been way more interference than help. You know, I think I think you're hundred percent correct. I think you're hundred. Now let me ask you something else. I mean, since you were on the ground there, um, I actually never went over after the storm. But you know, a lot of the people that had houses and lived in the neighborhoods where we were um, were over there, and. Um, I mean, the Bahamian government had death counts in the hundreds. And yeah. from what I from what I heard is the death count was probably in the multiple oh, of thousands. So is, it, is, is, that what you, is that what you experienced? Oh, yeah. When I was on the way home, I was standing in the airport uh, at, uh, at Treasure, and the, the military guy standing next to me was on the radio and told somebody to go ahead and order 5,000 body bags. Right, um, right, you right. Hear- and that was the real. That was the real news. I mean, I mean, that was. I mean, I'm, that's the real information. But what the news, um, 
well, basically came out with and what the what it's all in right the what they were reporting was totally different yeah it's all in the wording because what they would say and it's not a lie they would just say x amount of bahamian deaths see the bahamian government is embarrassed that about 50 about the percent of the population is uh illegal haitian immigrants right you know they're undocumented haitians now right so they didn't count them right and, but here, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying anything negative about the Haitian uh, population. The Bahamas has always had a huge Haitian population, much like South Florida has a huge Cuban population. And Haitian. Yeah, Haiti is an awful place. I mean, if you look at Haiti and Dominican on a map, you can literally see where the, the line is between the two countries because there's not a tree left in Haiti. Not one single tree left in Haiti. They've cut right. them all down because their chief export was charcoal. I mean, it's just like, it's just a, it's a desolate place. People do not like to live there. They want to get out of there and you can't blame them. And I mean, if you're going to leave somewhere and go somewhere, the Bahamas is a great spot, but current wise and travel wise, that just happens to be where they wind up, you know? Right. Right. Um, but a huge part of their workforce is Haitian. I've got so many Haitian friends down there. It's not even funny. Um, yep. One of my best buddies down there, Junior Maynard, uh, we call him the, the Haitian prince because he speaks, you know, perfect Creole. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the guy, he's a genius, speaks like seven different languages, but nothing really happens down there in that Haitian community in Hooktown without Junior having having his hand in it. You know, um, he makes sure that everybody's <laughs> on the same page. He makes sure that there's no like uh, no disturbances. I mean, he just keep he keeps the peace between the Bahamians, the second homeowners and the Haitians. Um right. You know, it's just it's a it's a really cool dynamic. So if you look at it from my perspective, because uh, after after the storm, you know, it's typically pretty clicky. You know, the Haitians hang out with the Haitians, blah, blah, blah. And towards the end, it got to be that way. The Haitians didn't really like some of the cooking because it wasn't spicy enough. So um, uh, Monique actually started cooking uh, for all the Haitians. But she, then she started charging them uh, money to, you know, to buy char- started charging them for the meals. Um but then there was an argument that some of them are getting all the ingredients from the commissary, which was free food that they were handing out to people, but then they were cooking it and then selling it. And I'm like, you know, that's when, you know, it's time to shut down the soup kitchens. When people are getting paid for their work on the Island, it's not volunteer work Mm -hmm. anymore. And then you start hearing this argument about commerce, people making money, people charging money. That's when it's time to stop giving out free food. And luckily it came to that. I was hoping that we were going to get to a situation where, um, they were just going to cut off the ingredients. And at that point, you know, that's, we, we would obviously have to shut down the soup kitchens. I didn't, this might, might be the wrong way to, to think about it or feel about it. I didn't want to be the one to say, all right, we're going to stop feeding y'all. You know, right. I just didn't right. want to make that decision. Because well, it's be tough, tough to, to pull make. the plug. Well, especially when yeah. you're not from there. Like it's not my place to tell them that, you know, that no more free meals. Now I did, I did cut them off one day. Um, there's a bar down there called on the beach and uh, mm-hmm. my buddy Doug owns it, him and his son, Hayden and Doug, uh, the first week after the storm, when people would go, he was just giving away, he had all, all of his freezers and all of his coolers and all were intact. So he was just giving away beers and stuff to have like a little happy hour where people come down there and chill and have a beer, you know? Well, right. he started selling them for $5 for a cocktail, $5 for a beer and putting all the money in a jar. And at the end of the night, whatever's in the, in the bucket, he would match it, and all that money goes to Hopetown Volunteer Fire and Rescue. And with the money, they started um, sending their guys to get more training, to get new gear because all their gear got ruined. Uh, I mean, we've sent down fire trucks and stuff for them. We got them back up and running now. But point being, 
So everybody was going down there and spending money. And then one night, about six weeks or eight weeks in, um, there was five people left at the bar and the generator cut off. So Hayden goes down and crosses the street, go turn the generator back on, comes back upstairs. All five people are gone and the bucket with 1400 bucks is gone. Oh, Jesus. Right. So I put a note up on the door. I was like, ain't nobody eating. And then, you know, y'all about to get some redneck justice here. Nobody's eating shit until somebody turns that bucket of money back up or turns in a name of whoever did it. You know, when y'all didn't just steal from Doug, y'all literally just stole from the whole town, from everybody here right. that needs it. And uh, yeah. about 12, 30, they're, they're supposed to eat at 12. So to torture them, I did fried conk and fried snapper uh, for lunch. And like 12, 30, <laughs> they're supposed to eat at 12, 12, 30, there was a name. Somebody turned them in. Um, but, you know, that was nice. the only time that I, I told them, that, you know, you're not getting fed today. But yeah, yeah. You know, we had to do something. Well, There's no cops. You can't call the cops on them. Well, all I can say is um, I knew you were over there doing that good work. And of all the people that would know when it's time to pull the plug and to move on, I mean, it'd be you. But yeah. you should be commended. And I just want you to know that um, there was a lot of people that were pulling for you and the effort. Um, that you guys were, were given over there. And um just want to take the time to thank you for it because uh, I know that you helped a lot of people. I know you helped a lot of people that I knew and that I was dear to. And, um, dude, it's just great stuff. Great stuff. And, now, I mean, and, you know, I'll, going I'll forward. Time, and I appreciate you saying that. And you of all people know that's not why I do it. I, you know, I, I don't want anything out of it. Uh, I just, I, I just, I like to sleep good at night and it's easy to do. After you go do something like that, you know, but it also every now and then we need a kick in the pants just to make us realize that what we got going on isn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It does definitely make you appreciate what you have and um, puts things in perspective. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, as bad as the crisis was in all those different disaster reliefs, um, I'm sure there was good that came out of each and every one of them in one weird way or the other. And I think oh, one of the main things was, is uh, you getting with a bunch of like-minded people um, coming together for a common goal and um, doing the right thing is always a big thing, especially here in the real guy network, Jamie. Um, I want you to know that um, you're the, you've got the record now on the real guy podcast for the longest podcast ever recorded. Did we just and, beat you um, the other day? <laughs> well, Didn't you just I have just, a long one with somebody else the other day? I had a long one, but nothing like this. And oh, um, I think we could go on for another hour, but I want to cut it off here and just say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And um, I wish you all the best up there um, in, in Charleston, uh, the Redfish Mafia Charters. I hope that that goes great for you and all the things that you're looking to do with your food. I hope that goes great for you. And just um, just know that you got a bunch of friends over here in the Real Guy Network, and we want to thank you for being part of it. Yeah, man, I appreciate that, and it means a lot coming from you. You uh, you kind of you're you're a trendsetter. You've been doing uh, you've been doing this stuff for a while, and been fishing probably uh, probably fishing longer than I have. Uh, what are you working? Well, you're it's, only because I'm a little older. Yeah. <laughs> it's only because there I'm a little go. older. You okay? There you go. <laughs> No, but thank anyway, you for what you're doing and keeping things in the forefront. People, uh, you know, let people know what's going on outside of the fishing world, but inside the fishing world as well. And uh, next time we go do something like that uh, after a storm, I'm going to take you with me. 
Well, I'll uh, I'll definitely touch base and I'll make sure I know what you're doing. Anyway, right. Jamie, thanks and um, look forward to talking to you some more in the future. And uh, run that dog, pal. Yes, sir. Hey, in the meantime, uh, everybody can go check out southeastrelief.org and uh, and theredfishmafia.com. And thanks again for the platform. And holler if you need something. That's why we're here. You got it. You got it, pal. Great to have you. you. All right, run that dog.